Welcome back, B2B listeners. It's Lee Moskowitz, your host of Lee2B, the sassiest podcast for B2B. Today, we're stepping into the world of talent strategy with Dr. Jim Canitriel, the friendly neighborhood expert and VP of growth at Engage Rocket. Bucking the trend of conventional sales approaches, Dr. Jim has consistently explored innovative ways to seamlessly integrate the selling and buying processes throughout his career. Nestled in the heart of HR tech, his expertise spans the entire employee and talent lifecycle with a keen focus on retention and turnover, backed by a doctoral research endeavor. Join us for an engaging conversation as we uncover unique insights and experiences on this episode of Lee to b Hey, Dr. Jim. Hey, Lee. That's uh, quite the intro. I, uh, I, I know that uh, just about every guest that you've had on this show has mentioned, wow, that's a, that's a really good job. But you haven't broken the streak with mine, so happy to be here. Thank you. You know, I, I'm worried I'm going to break the streak one day and someone's going to be like, what, what was that? Like, that was wrong. Uh, that's well, it's a good thing concern. that you have the ability to do retakes. So I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Honestly, I do very little retakes because then I have. To, no, I mean, that's just who I am. But I like to jump right into it. And so VP of growth. My question there is, do you consider yourself a marketer, a salesperson, a talent person? What do you, and I know I hate to put labels on things, but like B2B, what would you, what would you label yourself? I'd label myself an oddball. <laughs> so I think uh, if you want a short answer, that's, that's what I'll stick to. Um, if you're going to pin me down to really where the bulk of my experience sits, I've always been a sales guy, but I've been the sales guy that drives my sales managers nuts. Because I don't do things the way that you're quote unquote supposed to in the world of sales. So I've always had this aspect of how I go to market that is deeply tied to some core marketing principles. And one of the major ones is how do you make the buying process as frictionless as possible? And when you look at traditional sales motions, there's friction all over the place. It's all about persuasion and how can you slam somebody into a deal and all that sort of stuff. And it never really resonated with how I show up and what I thought the buying process or the selling process should look like. So if you're pinning me down, I'm a sales guy. And I often say I'm a sales guy that plays marketer on LinkedIn. <laughs> well, I have, I have many of those too. And I've had salespeople who go to marketing, marketing go to sales. No need to pigeonhole you though, but I'd guess I say, so like VP of growth, there's like VP of growth marketing, VP of like, where is VP of growth in terms of departments or is it just GTM? Yeah. So with Engage Rocket, it's a pretty unique situation that I'm in. So Engage Rocket has been an established company in the Asian market and we're in the employee engagement and, and performance management space. Obviously, from that side of the world, there was a big strategic initiative to open up U.S. markets and expand there. And I have deep experience within the talent space and especially across a lot of different areas in the employee lifecycle. I have a lot of depth in there, but particularly when it comes to talent attraction and then also retention and development are the spaces that I've consistently played throughout my career. So when you're asking the question about what's my you know, span of responsibilities as a VP of growth, it's everything revenue related. Now, I'm not an expert in all things revenue related, but there's 
market, there's a significant marketing component to it. There's a significant sales component to it. There's a customer success component to it. All of it, it has to come together in a unified way for us to be able to bring customers on in a completely new geography that, oh, by the way, has a ton of established competitors in the space. So we can't do what has been the traditional playbook for a lot of organizations, which is just spam your TAM. That's, that's not what we do. That's not what we started, uh, what we opened the market with the intent of doing. And we'll get into some of that a little bit later on. But that's, that's really, if you're looking at span of control, it's anything that sits on the revenue side is, is under my purview, but particularly a lot of marketing and sales. And those are tightly integrated in terms of how we go to market. So what, what metrics or OKRs or KPIs are typically, is it, is it just pipeline? Is it acquisition? Is it tons of other stuff? So right now it's entirely pipeline focused because we're dealing with a fairly significant set of challenges as far as opening up into a new geography. I mean, opening into the U.S. space as an HR tech company is pretty tough in and of itself. And it's even tougher, especially if you don't have any clients that are in your native market that have a footprint in the U.S. So you're dealing with dual challenges there. So our big focus is building pipeline and with the intent of narrowing down our ICP on the fly. So we have our ICP defined in Asia, in the U.S. We have some theories about what the ICP Mm -hmm. could be, but we don't know necessarily how the U.S. buyer is going to align with the product and what makes sense compared to other things that they've seen in the marketplace. So we have to incorporate a lot of product development principles into our marketing and sales process and run those in parallel. So you have three different motions that are running in parallel, all driving pipeline to varying degrees, but the intent is to figure out, okay, what is it that is going to be most critical for that buyer for us to get a toehold and then expand from there. Amazing. So I'd love to give our listeners who aren't familiar with Engage Rocket just a quick overview of, of what you guys do there. Yeah, I think in broad strokes, when you're looking at Engage Rocket, there's you know, what we do is an employee engagement and performance management platform. And really, when you look at what that means, it's creating a listening and action culture that might mean whatever it means to somebody that's listening. But essentially, when you look at across your people landscape, the biggest issues that you're going to deal with as an enterprise is that your line level managers aren't connecting the dots between the mission, vision, values of your organization and the work that your individual contributors are doing. So if you want to bridge that gap, you have to get your managers a lot more effective at being leaders. And unfortunately, in the world of work, a lot of those resources aren't spent at the line manager level. You know, when you're looking at employee engagement and and leadership development and training and all that sort of stuff, that starts at the director level and up instead of where the work is actually done, which is the line level manager. So if an organization is, is dealing with issues like we can't keep our people, our people keep burning out or at least leaving the organization within the first 90 days, we have a high amount of turnover that occurs within the first 12 months of employment. Those are all issues related to poor or, or at least gaps in onboarding, but that's tied with how effective your 
your line level managers are in connecting those dots and getting those employees up to speed and connected with the mission of the organization and how that shows up in the work. So we solve those specific challenges through our performance management and employee engagement capabilities. Pretty cool. I guess so. One of my questions, and you actually you, you hit on it already, is manager versus leader. And you can you can be a manager without being a leader. What to you is the difference between someone who is just a manager and someone who's actually leading and is an actual leader? That's a really good question. And I don't think they ne- it, it should be framed in that way where you split the two from each other. Everybody can be a leader. Even without the positional authority, you can be a leader. If you're an individual contributor, you could be so knowledgeable in your particular area of expertise that you're a leader in that space as an individual contributor, as a subject matter expert. So the idea that leadership is really something that is ordained based on the title that you have, I don't necessarily buy into that. When you think about how somebody progresses in their career. We start out as new in the world of work. We're kind of figuring out what we want to do. We land in a function that appeals to us. And then we start building out our capabilities. And over a period of time, we become really good at you know, our individual job. And then what often happens within an organization when leadership above you is thinking about, okay, well, we need to build a bench. Who gets promoted? Usually your top performers in whatever function get promoted. And then they're told, okay, congratulations, you're a manager or you're a people leader. Uh, let us know if, uh, if you have any questions. Good luck. And that's really the extent of what happens. So what happens is that when those leaders take those roles, anytime something starts burning down at the line level, what happens? Those new leaders actually go back into being producers and getting in the way of the people that are actually doing the work to try to fight fires. Instead, what they should be doing is taking a step back, asking the necessary questions that unlock that individual contributor's ability to solve the problem on their own and also facilitate their learning. So when you ask the question about, you know, what's the difference between a leader and a manager, it's the ability to pause, step back, ask the right questions to get the people that report into you thinking about potential solutions and how they could actually figure those things out on their own. That's the difference. And I think that people learn that through trial and error over time. I think that is a big failure in how enterprises are set up because if you're not Mm -hmm. equipping your managers with the capacity to take a step back, and create space for their people to actually learn and figure stuff out on, the, on their own, you're actually burning through a lot of resources while people use trial and error to figure that out. Yeah. What are, and I, so I'll say it, like obviously each situation will be different, but what is an example of a, the right question or a better phrased question versus a, a wrong question or not as constructive? So when you're talking about in the context of creating space for your people to learn, let's play it out this way. So I'm in sales and I have people reporting into me and somebody will come up to me and ask the question or make the, uh, make the statement, Hey, I'm stalled on this particular deal. The instinct for a lot of junior managers 
would be, okay, well, let's get the customer on the phone and, you know, see if we can get a meeting and, and figure out what the, what the blocker is. And the manager is playing the role of hero. If you want to avoid being the Lone Ranger or the Avengers or whatever, pick, pick whatever comic book character or whatever you want <laughs> in there. If you want to avoid being the person that's constantly riding to the rescue, I think having a checklist where you're asking, okay, what, what makes you think that this, this deal is, is stalled? Do we know what is most important for this particular customer to, to solve? Do we know? Uh, so asking, what do we know? Do we know? How do we know? What else is in play? So all of these questions that are designed to open up the view of the person that's bringing the problem that's how you actually get forward momentum. Do we know what they're like all of the basic sales questions you can ask? Like, do we know what their budgeting cycle is? Do we know who else is involved? Do we know who else we need to bring into the deal? Mm -hmm. All of those things create space for it. But the, the, the worst thing that you can do is, you know, ask some surface level questions and then say, okay, well, I'll help you through this. Let's, let's go get the customer on the, uh, on, on the line and, and work through it. So I don't think there is a right or wrong question. I think the issue is the level of depth that you take that first question. And the parallel that I'll draw is that as sellers, when you're doing discovery, you'll ask a question in search of the right, the quote unquote right answer that lets you know that, hey, I can move to this other step once I hear that answer. So we're, we're asking questions in pursuit of the answer that we want instead of asking the question in pursuit of what the actual truth is. So if we ask questions that just confirm what we already think is right, you're not going you're, you're to move that person mm -hmm. that reports into you in a position of learning or discovery or openness to kind of figure out the problem. Yeah, I so I've done a lot in the sales enablement and CRM work, and a lot of what I've done kind of mirrors what you're saying, where so many times it's focused on getting this person to complete a certain number of actions, whether it's a certain number of calls or emails or whatever, rather than focusing on what, what should matter, which is are we hitting the key milestones needed for the sales process? Did X happen in the deal? Did Y happen? Did the decision maker say this? Is So focusing more on the insights and milestones to me is where that difference comes rather than just like, hey, this person called 20 people. Yeah. And, you know, you make a great point, Lee. I think uh, I think the tendency of sales leaders, in, in, and I'm speaking, speaking with a broad brush, the tendency of sales leaders to confuse activity with achievement is a big problem. And it's why you have this overemphasis on how many, you know, emails or calls or any of that stuff did you do? And I've never been a person that really was paying a whole lot of attention to that aspect of it. When, when I've built my teams, as I got more experience underneath me, you know, one of the things that I would always say is I, I read from right to left. So when I'm mm -hmm. looking at what you're doing at the desk level as a seller, I'm looking at what are the outcomes that you're driving. And if the outcomes are where they're supposed to be, I'll, I might move a little bit further to the left just to make sure that the uh, leading indicators are in the right spot. But I'm not going to go all the way 
to the front of the funnel to, to, to look at it if everything else is fine. And I think that's, that's, a, that's an underrated philosophy that isn't used very well. So when you talk through being effective as a manager uh, in general, doesn't matter what the function is, you should lead with that outcomes emphasis first versus the activity emphasis because, I mean, every organization is full of grown-ass adults. So why are we leading them mm-hmm. as if they're children? You know, mm-hmm. and this is this is part of the, the 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 thing that used to drive my sales managers batty because they, they would say, Well, you didn't hit your five hundred things in the week. And I was like, So if I do five hundred crappy things in a week, that means I'm awesome, right? So which would you rather have me do? Do five hundred crappy things or maybe like hundred and fifty like really solid things? Because it's the really solid things that's going to actually get you the results, not the not the arbitrary number that you've seen. And I and I understand why those metrics exist because the goal is to take everybody across your enterprise and take the bottom third of your employee population, let's say within a sales context, your your sellers, and put them in a position to potentially have success. So you can, you can do that by brute forcing it by just emphasizing numbers, but wouldn't your time be better spent in coaching them at a granular level on what right. their talk track, tra- talk tracks sound like, what do their emails look like? How are they, uh, how are they engaging when a customer asks a question, like walk through the mechanics of it versus just looking at a volume of activity. Yeah. So like, and like the numbers can be helpful in the sense that, well, obviously the numbers can be helpful, but they can be helpful in the sense that, all right, we've done the math and it seems like we need X amount of calls to get one meeting or something like that. But then what happens is the spray and pray, which is the reason we're having all these emails go out is because these salespeople have these quotas to make and they have to send certain emails out. But... This gets us to the the very hot topic of the email changes that's been all over LinkedIn. And that spray and pray is not going to work for very much longer with with email marketing and email outreach. Before I I go any further, could I have you explain for our listeners or summarize the the email updates that are going on? Yeah, and this is not something that I'm like a a super expert on, but I think one It's okay, nobody is, but everyone pretends they are. When you look at new email rules that are coming out from Google and Yahoo and any, all of your major uh, email providers, they've essentially set a pretty high bar on outbound emails and the, the, the percentage of those emails that can be marked as spam or junk or whatever. And it's something like 0.3%. So it's a, it's a very, like, you'll, you'll hit that if you're not careful very quickly. And if you think about the typical motion within a sales organization, um, I, I can think of a couple of examples of, of places that I've been before. You have a team of 20 people and they're expected to send 300 emails a week. You can do the math right there. And most of these folks are not doing one-to-one personalized and relevant emails. It is you know, six paragraphs of crap about the product that hits somebody's inbox and they're like, delete. So you're going you're gonna to hit that that spam trigger pretty quickly and then you're going to end up getting your domain blacklisted. 
So the the idea of just mass emailing everybody hasn't been working for years anyways. One of the examples that I'll uh, I'll point out is that there was an organization that uh, I was at uh, in the past, and by I think I joined them in in April or June somewhere somewhere in that range, and we weren't actually it was before June. We weren't even at the half year halfway point uh, mark of the year, and there were already like half a million emails that were sent out with a 0.8% reply rate. And the first thing that I did is how can we be sending almost half a million emails and have a 0.8% reply rate? That's, that's horrible. Um, and people would respond back, well, our open rates are great. I was like, nobody cares about open rates. It's like, you don't, you don't get to move the needle because somebody opened your email and you can spoof that anyways. It's how many people mm-hmm. are responding to your email and how many people. And all are it really tells you is like, it tells you about your, your subject line. Yeah. Well, I mean, it tells you your subject line and your audience for, yep. for like, if you have a zero open rate, your audience is, is, is terrible or your subject lines are terrible or both. So it yeah. tells you that, but to your point, like it, that doesn't tell you anything more past that. Yeah. And, and that's the problem. When, when we talk about spam your TAM, it's, it's fundamentally misunderstanding the buyer journey. Uh, it's fundamentally misunderstanding the buyer journey because sales, uh, and you know, this is the, 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 this is how I came up. It's we're, we're conditioned to think that everyone's a buyer. And the reality of it is that 90, 97% 97% of your market isn't ready to buy. So why are we acting, why are we showing up and acting like 100% of our market is ready to buy right now? The, the key for any salesperson is to segment out their market, identify based on information that you know who is most likely to buy across a number of different criteria and approach them on a one-to-one basis in a way that gets them into your ecosystem. And the, the, the thing that I always worked on uh, thinking about, how do I get people who don't know who the hell I am to talk to me? That's the question that every seller or marketer or both should be obsessing about. How do I get more people to have meaningful conversations with me? And, you know, before, you know, I was in B2B tech, I was thinking about that question. How do I, how do, I do that? and be unique compared to what the standard motion is in the marketplace. And I think this is going to be a critical set of questions that sellers and sales leaders and marketers are going to need to think about when you're looking at 2024, 2025, and so on. And marketers, I think, already think about these things. Yeah. The problem is that most sellers can't get, a, get, a, get away from their ego to apply some of the things that marketing does in a way that's going to create more conversations or opportunities for conversations as sellers. But ideally, ideally marketing and sales are working together on that. So the sellers aren't responsible for that solely. The, the best way is to get an ICP and narrow down your TAM and then expand your TAM, total addressable market, your TAM, is for sales and marketing to mutually do, define those things together. Because too yeah. many cases, they're they're working on separate account lists or not account lists at all or different ICP definitions, and it, it gets messy. 
I mean, I think I, I think one of the things, one of the really easy things for sales leaders to do next year, if they want to fix this problem, anytime you have a new hire that joins your sales organization, doesn't matter what function they're in. I don't care if they're an SDR, if they're an AE, whatever. Identify your top 10 customers, the people that are paying right now, and sit that new person in your organization and run them through a customer research exercise. Mm-hmm. What happened? B- uh, before you bought with us what were the what were the things that you were thinking about that that had you go to market when you looked at competing products what were the things that were most important to you how did we actually satisfy those things what did we miss on that you realized wasn't wasn't that important that's going to get your reps regardless of where they are much more attuned to the problems that you solve and why your customers buy from you and that second part is important why do your customers buy from you and that's going to help your messaging. And it's also going to give you the insight into what industry should I be focusing on based on these 10 customers that I've talked to and what they described about their buyer journeys. That should be a, I mean, I would make the argument that that should be a critical piece of a seller's onboarding from day one. They should be embedded and maybe even in the customer success group as part of that conversation when you're looking at integrating the revenue function and and integrating sales, marketing, customer success, so that you're actually better enabled to sell, that should be a core piece of what a lot of organizations are, are, are involved with. Now that might be happening at large organizations. I don't know. I've always been a startup or accelerating growth guy. So it's, it's been natural for me to kind of like lift that on my own and just do it. But if that's not part of your enablement strategy, if that's not part of your sales onboarding strategy, you're missing a big opportunity mm-hmm. in getting your sellers as effective as possible. And this is why attribution and CRM data and all that is so important, especially in the startup world. I mean, I imagine enterprise too, but so many times it's like, okay, this is the account. Your main person on the account, they weren't there when the sale happened. They don't have any insight into why they, they purchased the product. It just showed up. It was just there when they showed up. So especially as people keep moving around, being able to pinpoint this is where, where the person came from. This is how we had that deal. So many startups like literally are like, we don't know. Or it was deal for deal based or stuff like that where it's just not, not helpful. Yeah, I mean, really pinning down what were the top two or three biggest problems that existed within their their environment that triggered them to look at go to market. That's that's a critical piece of insight. And you know, I'll, I'll reference back to kind of what what we're doing at Engage Rocket. That's that's what we're organically working on on doing right now. And you know, I think that's a critical step, having that product, product manager mindset, product development mindset as a seller is going to serve you well to, to identify kind of where your, where your gap is that you can actually, actually accelerate in the marketplace. So I want to get into content-led growth because mm-hmm. I know you're a big proponent and strategist behind that. Content-led growth. Actually, before I go, and I'll let you you explain it, you're, you're, and we'll get into some fun stuff there. But I, too, am a big believer. Tell, tell our listeners, what is content-led growth versus a content strategy? And, and I'm not, it, it's, it's my own phrase, and I've heard it here and there all over the place. I don't think there's a unified definition for it, but 
what I bank on is this. For those that are listening, I think the phrase that will trigger something in the listener's brain is if you follow Josh Braun, and he's a big sales coach on LinkedIn. He's one of the one of the big voices for sellers in LinkedIn. He often says, "Don't fight the resistance, join the resistance." And that's critical for sellers to embrace because think about it. We're taught in terms of persuasion and, you know, sort of this binary win-lose relationship. When we're talking about how do you join the resistance? The resistance is when anytime you encounter your customer that's pulling away from you based on things that you're doing or saying. So when I started thinking about this, and this happened even before you know I, Josh was on my radar, what I started thinking about was, again, how do I get in front of more customers? How do I have meaningful conversations? And how do I actually build something authentic where I can actually get a landscape of what's going on with that particular customer without having to you know, have a stage uh, a discovery stage that's artificial and sterile where people aren't being honest. How do I do all of that? Mm-hmm. And that's where the idea of, of really content collaboration, but bringing your prospects alongside of you towards a greater purpose or towards a bigger purpose really uh, is a core part of what I'm building out in Engage Rocket. But I've actually built this motion basically the last four or five different roles that I've had. And the idea is really simple. Instead of reaching out to your prospects and using a problem statement, why aren't you leveraging their expertise and spotlighting their ability to solve the things that they've solved throughout their career and creating an audience that is hungry for that information? And it's all tied to a question that several people ask, which is Steve Watt in particular, he's the director of marketing at Seismic. He often, sa- he often says, you should be asking, where do your customers go to learn? Where do your buyers go to learn? Why can't they go to you to learn? Mm-hmm. Why can't you go out to the market, find practitioners who are leaders in the space or who have done interesting things based on what you see on LinkedIn, bring those buyers alongside of you and have them share their expertise? So there's a great line in Hamilton where Aaron Burr is talking about, I want to be in the room where it happens. You need to be Aaron Burr and really make it. He never was in the room where it happens. You need to be Hamilton where you're where the the sausage gets made. Yep. And it's really simple. If you you pick, if, if you're in sales and you're selling to sales leaders, spotlight their expertise, bring them Mm -hmm. alongside of you to share their expertise you're in the room and you're actually doing discovery and building relationships without really even having it be a formalized stage. And you're generating all of this content and you're building a rock solid relationship that you wouldn't be able to do if you did the other way around, which is a pure selling conversation. So when I say content led growth, don't spam your TAM, that's how you actually execute it. It's by being authentically curious about what that person has experienced and spotlighting them instead of having all the attention be on you. It sounds so, I want to say almost obvious, but like, yes, it's easy to say these things, but these things are about meticulous content planning and also just being open to completely, I don't want to say completely pivot, but to pivot after you speak to enough customers and be like, whoa, they're all talking about this or they care about this. We've been talking about that. 
at plus like they your customers and your prospects are the best subject matter experts for you because they're who you're selling to. Yeah, and if you can if you can design which which is something that we've we've done as part of our full motion, if you can design your entire sort of selling motion to mirror the buying journey and the other thing that I often talk about is how are you taking discovery from a stage and making it perpetual? Like every opportunity for you to connect with your customer is a discovery opportunity. So why are we creating these artificial stages, which also creates an unnecessary pr uh, pressure on sellers to like advance people through stages? Well, people aren't going to advance through a stage just because you say it's time to advance through a stage. They're going to advance through a stage based on their readiness. So why not? actually journey with them throughout that entire process. And all the while you're prioritizing who you should be spending more of your time with. You're organically discovering, Hey, mm -hmm. this person after my conversations is, you know, somebody that's going to be 18 months down the road. So great. I'll just keep them warm and I'll go continue my, my perpetual discovery conversations with everybody else that's in my account list and work on organically building them into a prioritization schedule versus having to guess at, mm -hmm. at who's in the market, who's not in the market. It's, it's such an easier way to go about it. And you don't need to be a content creator to do it necessarily. You can do this in a lot of grassroots old school ways, and we can get into that as well. But you, I mean, I, I, I happen to be I happen to create a lot of content. I have a podcast. I have a YouTube channel. I write a lot. So there's a lot of different avenues that I can use to connect with a potential buyer. You know, my advice to sellers out there is find out a way to link what you're passionate about and bring your buyers alongside of you. And even if it's not directly related to like the thing that you sell, the ability for you to connect on that relational level will actually accelerate you through whatever funnel you have faster than the spam your TAM approach. I love spam your TAM, by the way. Do you have a shirt that says that? Like, you should get one. Uh, uh, that's, a, that's a merch opportunity there. Yeah. Oh, Lee will be able to sell it. Just kidding. Well, maybe. Yeah. But it is time for Spill the Tea with Lee. That's right. This is the sassiest podcast for B2B, and it's going to get juicy. All right, Dr. Jim, so I know a lot of your doctoral research focused on turnover and retention. So I have a few questions there, but in today's job market is insane. Every job posting has thousands, hundreds of applicants on it. Everybody is hiring and nobody is hiring. Does, does retention even matter anymore? And I'm saying this kind of facetiously, like half serious, but also like does retention matter in, in a world where like, interviewers don't have any power anymore it seems like so it depends on who you're asking the question if you ask the vast majority of uh, c-suite execs i would argue that they would probably look at the solution to all their problems is just hire more people oh wait you know we we lost headcount let's just go hire some more people and that's a fundamentally flawed mindset that a lot of organizations have because if you're creating that talent attraction hamster wheel where you have a revolving door in your organization, you're bringing people in, they stick around for however they stick around, but probably not very long if you have structural issues all the way through your post-hire process. And you're constantly in this churn engine, which has some 
really negative brand implications for you as well. If you're in that rhythm, the solution can't be, well, just hire more people. You know, that, it, it makes no sense. So to your question, does retention matter anymore? It absolutely matters, but because it's tougher for an organization to solve, everybody naturally defaults to let's just hire more people. And here's why what I mean by it's tougher to solve. Your ability to retain talent, I would make the case that how you structure your position descriptions influences your ability to retain talent. Because if you're not clear about what the role expectations are, if you're not clear about what the role deliverables are, if you're not clear about the day-to-day, and a great example of a company that is it is laser focused on how they structure that. Take a look at Sprout Social and their position descriptions. You're absolutely clear across all, all layers of the organization what you're supposed to do. That's the template. And I would wager that they have pretty low churn as a result. So your ability to retain talent is as granular as what your position descriptions are. And that sets the tone. And you can identify different areas all through the employee life cycle. But how difficult would it be to do a gap analysis across that entire stage? Isn't it a lot mm-hmm. easier just to say, oh, well, let's just hire more people. And if somebody works out, great. Yeah. That's, that's the issue. I, I've never, un- I mean, again, maybe if I was an owner and had thousands of employees, I'd get it. But to me, I've never understood where it's like, hey, we have people who love their jobs here, love the company or kick us at the job, why don't we try to retain them rather than just laying them off? Why don't we find some other solution? Why don't we do... Oh, you have something to say here. I saw that. Oh, yeah. So when we talk about how do we make our... or How do we create a culture that listens and acts? You're hinting at... Or you're not hinting. You're saying it out loud. You're You're talking about something that's absolutely critical. Managers are not having those sort of conversations. Leaders within organizations aren't pushing back on whatever arbitrary things that their execs say that, oh, we need to whack like 200 people. Leaders aren't asking the question, well, can't they be reassigned? We, we, we ignore these things, and yet we're putting up all of these different posters on hallways and stuff like that that, 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 that has that corporate speak about culture and whatnot, but we're not really living the culture at the line level. So if you're not regularly having the conversations about what do you want to do, how do we make that happen? How do we, if, if you're not really mapping a vision that that individual on your team has to where they can go within the organization, these are sort of the root reasons why they're, they're, there's churn. Like a lot of organizations ignore career pathing or they ignore they, they let employees sit in the idea, oh, I'm a marketer, so that means I, I can go from where I am as a content marketer and I'm sitting there spending my entire career looking at and figuring out how do I become a CMO? What if I don't want to become a CMO? What if I want to go into product? Like Nobody is deliberate from a leadership or management perspective about having that conversation. We are not having the conversations like the career pathing conversations where you should be looking at your career as a as a lattice not a ladder and that's the problem so if you care about retaining people and you should because every time you lose somebody productive off your team you're going to be be burning 250% 
of their annual salary, up to 250% of their annual salary from your books. So you should care about this. Executives should care about this. The next time an exec says that we don't have the money for that, if you're an HR leader or if you're a people leader, look at your turnover and look at your voluntary turnover, the people that left without unexpectedly, and do the math and stick that in front of your exec and say, hey, maybe we should start fixing this because then we'd have money. Take it even further and have the data on who is leaving. Is it, is it all women who are leaving the company? If so, there's a reason. Is everybody who we've retained straight and cisgender? There's a reason for that. Is everybody white? There's a reason for that. So the more data points you have and the more you look on it, the more answers you find and the more you can change. Yeah. And, and again, Lee, you're, you're talking about or you're pointing at why solving for retention is so difficult because it's not a linear answer because mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. multiple factors that, 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 that are at play that determine whether you're going to have a retention culture or not, especially your point about what are the demographics of the people that are leaving tell you, like we've seen, you know, from 2019 on, everybody talking about how diverse they are as an organization. And one of the, what are candidates doing when they're looking for the job? They're not, they're, they're not looking just at who is at their level. They're looking at who's on the board, who's on the executive team that looks like me. Who's on the hiring team? Who's on the hiring team? And if you're not well represented at all levels of the organization, you're not going to get the best talent. And your best talent isn't going to stick with you. They're going to look for a place where they, they have much, a, a much bigger sense of belonging. And that's the problem. You still have a large group of executives who don't think this stuff matters and who also, by the way, don't think DEIB matters, where all the data and all the research points to the complete opposite. If you want a high-performing team, if you want a high-performance organization, you have to care about these things. You have to be mm-hmm. invested in it and you have to embed it at all levels of the organization. And yet people want to camp out on the stuff that says, oh, nobody cares about this. Right. I want you to spill the tea on a misconception or a myth that is typically said or thought of in the HR or talent industry. Just something you want to shine the light on that you either disagree with or you think is a misconception. Yeah, I think that that's a great question. And there's a certain... And before I before I answer, I think there's a certain bit of irony that you're asking the guy wearing a sweater vest to spill the tea <laughs> because I'm like the most boring, non-gossipy guy that's out there. Well, but I bring not, it out of everybody. So, <laughs> But to your point about what's the myth, especially in the HR space, that I wish would go away. And I'm not an HR practitioner, so this is a, a disinterested uh, third party that's saying it. And I actually had somebody mention this uh, earlier today. I think one of the most poisonous things that exists from a myth perspective is this idea that HR is not your friend. I hate that phrase. I think it's so stupid. Like if it, it, mainly because it comes out of a lot of the poor executive leadership that exists out in the world of work in HR and HR professionals tend to be at the brunt of those poor executive decisions. Spotify just laid off a whole bunch of people right before the holidays. And it was probably some out of touch 
exec who is trying to get their multi-million dollar bonus that said, oh, let's just whack a bunch of people and make our balance sheet look good. And they send poor HR to, you know, cut the cord of all of these employees. So, yes, they actually did a good job of actually exiting well. But that's not that's not really what you should be focused on. Like you don't get a banner or a ribbon for whacking people the right way. Like your focus should be how are we as a culture making sure that we're taking everybody, everybody into consideration as the whole person. And the whole idea of HR is not your friend. I think it's a bad look because when you when you take HR out of the equation, you're going to have if you have a crappy uh, onboarding. Well, that's because you're at an organization that thinks HR is just an admin function that doesn't really have an impact on the business. So I really wish people would get away from it because HR are people just like any other, any, just like people in any other function. So the idea that you shouldn't really work with HR to solve the things that are important to you from a career perspective is really misguided. I think that, I think that's a really important point, and I think similar with talent acquisition, which is you know pretty adjacent to HR. When we I look at hiring processes now, I've been in so many, and when I when I speak to other people, the hiring processes are a mess. They're a mess, and they're terrible, and they're one sided, and you know I'm making blanket statements. It's not everybody, but they they're not they're not doing service for their company or their candidates, and a big part of it, as I find, is a lot of talent acquisition people have also been laid off. So the people who know how to hire, the, the people who know the proper processes aren't there. Yeah, and, and you, point, you point to something that's pretty interesting because uh, TA rolls into HR anyways. It's part of, that, uh, part of that, that umbrella. And the reality of it is that when you look at how HR in general is viewed by the business, they're seen as an expense. So when mm-hmm. you look at all of the HR functions, all of the talent acquisition functions, one of the big challenges that exists is that they, they are viewed as expenses that don't really drive business outcomes, don't really help you uh, control costs or drive revenue. And that's a big gap that exists between HR as a function and communicating their ROI to the business. And mm-hmm. by the way, that's something that Engage Rocket is working on um, in, in connecting those dots so that HR is actually empowered to point to the business results that they are driving within the organization. And that's why you see sort of this haphazard process that exists within hiring and whatnot, because HR as a function, talent acquisition as a function are running super lean. I mean, think about it. I talk to HR leaders on a fairly regular basis that are that have oversight over thousands of employees. And when I asked them about their team size, they're like, oh, we have 20 people in, in HR or something like that. Some ridiculous number where one mm-hmm. HRBP is handling 100 or 200 employees in terms of their day-to-day mechanics. To flip the script a little bit, when you talk about reporting structures within an organization, if you're a leader and you have more than 10 direct reports, that becomes a lot. So imagine you're an HRBP having to have a span of control over 200 people or even 100 people. That's a mess. So when you point to, hey, these processes are kind of messed up, 
that's probably one of the reasons. And the root cause is that HR has been unable to communicate the ROI to the business about why they need more headcount, how their activities actually drive bottom line results is one of the mm-hmm. big problems that exists. And that's why you have these messed up processes. Yeah. And, you know, as a marketer, I mean, this is exactly the thing with marketing. Marketing literally is an expense to people. They're often the first things to go. So, but it's important for me to have these reminders. Yeah. So, so is talent acquisition. So is HR. The person who like hired, who got everybody at one of the startups I was at literally was, was let go early on, even though he brought like everybody on because they knew they weren't hiring. And that's where startups get into it. So, so yeah. Yeah. The, the, the whole marketing as an expense bit kind of makes me wonder, too, because I, I'd, I'd love to see what pipeline looks like without marketing. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you're having your entire sales organization grow organic pipeline just through outreach, outbound, good luck doing that well without marketing. Like, right. It, Unless it you're all- like fully product-led growth or user-led growth. There's, there's yeah. no way. Yeah. And, and that's... You know, I don't know how many enterprise organizations are using the other that. big problem too is like there nobody knows the company at all. There's no market share. And then they're like, We're only gonna focus marketing on pipeline. And I'm like, we can't demand gen's amazing, growth marketing is amazing, but this can't be the first time they hear about us. We can't just yeah. try to get a meeting the first time they hear about us. I think there's a lot of things that need to be re-examined in terms of how sales and marketing organizations are going to market. And in a similar vein, just because I'm in that space, there are a lot of things that need to need to be reevaluated from an HR perspective because we're not setting up those functions to be successful. Yeah, well, this was such a, a great conversation. Honestly, we can keep going on this. But before we wrap, I, I want you to shout out anything with Engage Rocket that you have coming up, anything you personally, where people can contact you, anything else you want to call out. Yeah, I mean, I think if people want to continue the conversation, I'm I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, so you can always find me there. Uh, if you want to learn more about Engage Rocket, you can go to engagerocket.co. We actually just put out our HR 2024 Outlook report, so that is drawn from our interviews of over a hundred executive and senior HR leaders in the U.S. and Canada. And we've identified four key trends that HR leaders should be paying attention to as they look into 2024. You can grab that report, um, go to our website, and then do slash HR uh, impact, and you'll be able to get that report. Uh, That'll be useful uh, for you. So those are the big things. Uh, But connect with me on LinkedIn. Happy to talk shop or talent strategy with, uh, with anybody. HR Outlook also sounds like it's the perfect example of proper content-led growth. It, it absolutely mm-hmm. is. And it's, a, it's an, like every conversation feeds a piece of content. And that's the, you're exactly right. The, the Outlook report is taken from interviews uh, that we've conducted from our podcast that feeds sort of a market research motion, so on and so forth. Well, Dr. Jim, thank you so, so much for being here. Again, could talk to you all day about this stuff and talent acquisition and content marketing and whatnot. But yeah, thank you so much for for being here. And thank you all for listening. I'll see you for another episode of Lee2B next time. Enjoying Lee2B? Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews go a long way in supporting me. Thank you so much.